Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reinsurance Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jared Lee. And I'm Ben Rose. And sat next to another very special guest today, we have Dr. Shima Adya, who is the Head of Space and Innovation at Hamilton. So welcome, Shima, to the podcast. Thank you. Hello. Great to be here. Thank you for joining us. I've worn my NASA t-shirt in celebration of this. <laughs> um, I My my partner's going to laugh. I'm a massive like nerd of, a, of sort of space stuff. So we, we're, we're going to try to keep this insurance-y if we can, okay. but like we might tuck into some like niche insurance, uh, space and reinsurance nerdy stuff. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Same here. And I, I've unfortunately discovered that Jared is way more of a space nerd <laughs> than I am. So I, I brought some magazines with me to learn about space and be very excited. And Jared clearly knows far more than I do. So <laughs> I might be listening for a lot of this episode, but we'll find out. But but so taking a step back, how did you sort of land to where you are in your career? What sort of path did you take to land in sort of space and innovation at Hamilton? What does that kind of look like first? Sure. So yeah, going back, I always wanted to uh, I was always interested in space, wanted to work in a related field. I studied uh, science at university and then I did a PhD in astrodynamics, which is looking at the motion of man-made objects in space. And then I kind of didn't really know what to do after that. Mm. Um, the UK hasn't got a huge space industry, although it's becoming, to, it's starting to have one now. But I, I did work for a company called Kinetic for a few years as a space missions engineer in the UK. Mm. And we were mainly working on European Space Agency projects, but we did do a piece of consultancy work for an insurer, and that was my first contact with the insurance market. And um, we, were, we were calculating reliability of satellites and doing modeling for them. And that's how I got to know them, and I found myself finding it really interesting and sort of transitioned over. They offered me a job in London. I really wanted to work in London. Um, and so, yeah, found myself um, doing... Doing, doing insurance. That was a long time ago and I'm still here. I can't quite leave it. It's, it's a really it, it's a great job. It'll trap you. Well, yeah, once you get yeah. in this. <laughs> Nobody dreams of, of going into insurance, but then once people are in, they find it very hard to leave. One, one of the things we talk about a lot and the sort of one of the aims of our show is, is to get people who are young and interested in this kind of space just excited about what you can, what you find here what you land in this industry because it covers so much and mm -hmm. I think this is one of those real conversations of like oh, the insurance part of this other area that I'm interested in is really interesting. There's yeah. so much to unpack here. So. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't even known about space insurance. And yeah. actually, it's it's amazing because you, well, by being an insurer, you get a like a front front row seat what, looking at everything that's happening across the world in the space mm. insurance. So any kind of countries that have companies with ambitions for commercial space, you get to see what's going on and they really um, explain everything to you in great detail. So it's a real privilege actually yeah. to get that level of, of, in, of detail and knowledge about the space industry. And I, I suspect you get that quite a bit earlier than a lot of other people as they're doing like the early preparation planning kind of work. So you're probably brought into the conversation very early, I would say. Yeah, suspect. because um, these, a lot of the assets are obviously very high value and very mm. capital intensive and so often before the bank loans and financing can all be in place the insurance has to be part of that process so it's not unusual for us to be speaking to clients a year or two years before they're actually launching an asset and at that point you get you know very detailed uh, information a couple of hundred page packs about the technology about the business plans and everything and so uh, yeah you get a lot of information early on that's super exciting and, and I guess how crucial is insurance to enabling these things to even be scoped, I guess, to begin with? Is that an absolute necessity? Does anybody ever just say, oh, we can get insurance, but we're going to do it anyway? Like, I mean, traditionally, most launches are, have, have been insured. Um, 
not all operators need to insure once the satellites are up and in orbit because mm -hmm. they might decide that's a risk they're willing to take or they've got redundancy in built because they've got constellations, multi-satellites. But most launches were insured. We're now seeing um, a lot of private entrepreneurs private companies start who've got you know mm. very rich uh, founders and appetites for risk that are kind of different to mm. <laughs> to before so um some so for example spacex and other companies they won't necessarily buy buy insurance yeah so who so who are the clients then most so you have firms like spacex and blue origin and then you have um governments like esa and nasa in place like are though do they buy insurance as well or do they sort of also assume risks for launches kind of as a part of their overall expenditure? I mean, it can vary. So we do cover various governments for their launches. Most of our clients tend to be big operators for communication satellites, so for providers of TV, video, broadband. Mm. Uh, that's the majority of what we cover, and that's all out in geostationary orbit, which is um, probably 70 to 80% of our business. We've also got a lot of clients who are in low Earth orbit, and they will be for more imaging satellites, mm -hmm. remote sensing, and that sort of thing. So I'd say it's mainly non-government, but governments do. But there's a bit of a transition now anyway. A lot of governments are outsourcing their contracts to private companies mm -hmm. as a way of kind of transferring the risk and enabling competition so they can get better value for money. So we are seeing, you know, even entities like NASA buying a fair bit of insurance for their projects. Yeah. Yeah. I was, well, I was trying to think about this earlier. We're, we're trying to do a taxonomy kind of thing of where do you put all these categories of insurance and which ones are space technically yeah. and which ones are actually property and so on? Because under the the space industry umbrella, I guess you've got everything from telescopes that are on the ground that mm -hmm. need to be transported and not damaged on their way to a mountaintop in Chile. And you've got then the launches that we talked about. Then you've got the things that are already in space. You've got both damage to those things and presumably yeah. some kind of liability for the things once they are in in orbit and then you've got these amazing missions that take place that go out to you know mars and beyond yeah how, how much of those different uh, you, you said satellites are from yeah. uh, are a big part of that how much of the other stuff gets touched by the the space yeah. so definitely the satellite and the asset the kind of property damage to the satellite is the main thing we ensure we and the launch is the riskiest phase of that mm. But we also do pre-launch, so where there's uh, when the manufacturing, testing, and transporting the satellite, and liability, like you say. Um, mm -hmm. So many states, well, you, launch liability is compulsory, but for the mm -hmm. third party um, in orbit is not. Or not it depends on the country you're in, um, but it's increasingly going to become regulated. I think mm -hmm. as more people are worrying about debris. So I'd say you know those the pre-launch and the liability market are probably no more than five to ten percent of the entire space insurance market as we see it now. Yeah, and is it is it seen as traditional insurance, or is this going to be kind of in a facultative space, or who are you are you are your clients the like like SpaceX, or do you have like an insurer that sits between you and you sort of see? No, we're generally the direct you insurer go, of the correct. clients. Yeah, Makes SpaceX, sense. even if it isn't buying insurance for the launches, for example, the client that's the satellite owner will buy insurance for the launch phase. That might mm -hmm. be on a Falcon Nine. Yeah. Um, so, but we'll be the direct insurer. And then our oh, go ahead. I say there's an interesting one I was reading about, and we 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 do want to come onto the history of of space at some point during this episode. But uh, salvage, I understand, is quite a big part of this space as well to the point where you could end up almost having insurers being the clients who are commissioning a mission to try and get back something that yeah. has been claimed upon in order to get the salvage i mean it's oh. not hugely common but funnily enough there is an example of that for i think um in the 1980s early on lloyd's actually uh 
paid for the services of a shuttle mission to go and uh, almost like collect two satellites that had been placed into right. the orbit and, and weren't really going to work. So they, the astronauts were out there getting the, these two satellites back into the, the shuttle bay, bringing them back down to Earth, mm -hmm. um, fixing them and then selling them. And that made, so they had a big, they would have had a fairly big loss on their hands and they managed to bring that down. But it's not often that we mm -hmm. take title of satellites. It's not our preferred route, to be honest. Yeah. There's better place people to operate in their satellites yeah, than, than the insurers. Yeah. Is there a way they could bring them for large satellites? Could that still be done? Obviously, the um, the the space shuttles had a bay by which you could sort of take yeah. things out, put things back in. But current sort of no. rocketry doesn't really have that same mechanism. Is that no. not really a possible? It's not anymore? really possible. And you know, most of the things are too far away for you to, yeah. to do that. Um, but. There are, there are new concepts in orbit servicing is becoming a thing. Um, mm. It's not really, we haven't seen much of it since that, you know, where we're refueling spare parts. There's a, a lot of activity in that space. And as insurers, we're seeing some of that and we're starting to insure some of that as well. And as insurers, it's important. Like previously, you know, a, a total loss, you would just think, okay, that's a total loss. Um, now, could it be fixed? And how does that play mm. into the insurance and, and what, whose obligations are they and where? And none of that's really been worked through. But I think as in-orbit servicing becomes more proven and more of a concept, then I think that needs to be brought into the insurance solution somehow. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Because let's, let's face it, there's so much that can go wrong, you know, in this <laughs> whole process. Like what, what defines any kind of loss, I, I, I guess, because you could have something that's as you said, completely broken or, yeah. you know, no way going to solve this thing. Or it could be, ah, mm. uh, the thing that was the <laughs> lens cap that was going to shoot off so we could take pictures yeah. didn't go. So the losses are mainly defined by whether the satellite can carry out its intended purpose or not, okay. or what fraction of its intended purpose. So for a communication mm. satellite, it's got a number of transponders on board and it's supposed to operate all of those for a certain length of life. If there's a fuel loss, loss halfway through the mission and the mission's only going to last for 10 years and not 15, then you'll have a loss which accounts for the last five years of the mission that you're not going to have. So it won't be a total loss. Total losses tend to happen when you're on the, you know, the launch fails that mm. often, but not always will result in a total loss. Yeah. How often are launch, do launches fail currently? Obviously, you saw a lot of test launches from, especially uh, SpaceX was really transparent with all of their launch efforts and, and explosions and things that, um, that happened, but you don't really see as much coverage on failed launches now. Is it, my assumption is they're less common, but I, they're yeah. obviously I mean, still very risky. You can't really hide risky. a failed launch, but you no. know, if they happen, everyone knows about it. Yeah, um, no, they're not very quiet. Yeah. It really varies from launch vehicle to launch vehicle, and typically you know, 5% of launches, just if you had to sort of ballpark, one in 20 launches might fail. But then, mm. you know, the Falcon 9s have got a much better proven record. The Ariane 5s have got a much better proven record. But we're, we're going through a phase where there's a lot of new development of launch vehicles, either by established manufacturers mm. or by new manufacturers. And I think that, you know, early launches do go wrong and they do yeah. fail. So, yeah. Is that the sort of, if you were to paint a kind of, toolkit for a, a budding space underwriter is this the sort of thing they'd need to know like which rockets perform the best and yeah and that sort of thing i mean honestly the the launches are sort of the easy bit because the mm. data is really available mm. and as long as you know if there's a history you can look at you can look at the failure rate and, and price accordingly and then obviously sometimes the you know rockets the variants will have different stages that have slight you know there's differences but it's there's not that much you can play with to come up with your rating but these yeah. the the, the other risky phase is when the satellite detaches from the launch vehicle, so it's inserted into orbit, and then it switches on and it's commissioned and all the antenna are unfurled. At that point, 
any manufacturing defects uh, or design faults will come out. And that's actually, we get as many losses from that stage as, as from the launches. Yeah. And that's the bit where you really need to technically mm. do all your technical assessments. So, you know, we look at every component on the satellite and look at what heritage it's got, whether it's flown before, um, if it has failed, why it's failed and what they've changed and how it's been tested. And there's a lot of rigor that goes in, into that. So most teams that do space underwriting have an engineer, someone from industry who is on hand to to help with that analysis. Interesting. Your your role is space and innovation. We're talking mostly on the space, but I want to sort of lean into the intersection there. Yeah. Um, with sort of space tourism. Are you in, is this something that you guys are looking at or interested in? Do you want to be someone who's ensuring these things or are you running away from that as fast as you can? What's your sort of thoughts on that one is an emerging category um, and then to your sort of interest in how you'd understand the risks associated with that? Because again, it's a very different profile than a satellite, mm. which if it breaks exactly. like I mean, it's it, much there have been some risk placed in the market recently for some missions and certainly, you know, it's business, and if it, you know, if it's going to be good, reliable business, then, mm. and we, you know, if, if if astronauts are going up in a in a Falcon Nine to the space station for a stay, then why wouldn't we ensure that? Because we do, but it's what we ensure and the liability part of it, and it is very, very different. But I don't think there's any reason why they should fall out of space insurance. Maybe we'd need to get some skills in from outside. From, mm. you know, we we quoted on a risk recently where we brought in our. An A and H team because they have more experience with personal accident, mm -hmm. and so we work together to quote. So I think there's real room for new product development, and it's really exciting. And certainly, we're not shying away from that. I'd yeah. like to see that in our market. Yeah, but there's loads of other new um, industries like uh, space tourism, private space stations, because the International Space Station is going to be retired in the next few years. And there's several companies working on new space stations, and you know, all or how is any of that going to be insured? It's, Insured, it's all up for grabs, and you know I certainly think the space market should try and get its head around it and yeah. offer solutions for that. And does the space market typically get involved in the the very cutting edge, like the first ever, you know, Mars rovers, or if they decide to try and build yeah. a, a colony in the clouds um, in Venus or whatever? Is yeah, that... it's not often we really love the idea of something completely uh, yeah. out there. Um, I mean, it's a sub subscription market, so when there is something. Um, you know a bit a bit more exotic at least we can share the risk mm. with other insurers so we you know we try we realize the importance of it but at the same time it's very difficult if something's got a 50 percent failure rate to mm. to justify you know um and yeah. how you can rate it but recently we were we were looking at um lunar lander and mm. you know whether whether we could ensure that and all sorts of other things so yeah, I mean, in some ways, most people who are space insurers really like progress and are really excited about the industry. At the same time, it's like, uh, yeah, we'll insure as long as it's done this before. So it's a yeah. bit of a dichotomy there. Yeah. Yeah. So the question I'm sure all listeners want to know, are you are you getting like shortlisted to go on a, a space tourism? Or are you someone who would do this if you had the opportunity? Um, I don't think we're going to get any free tickets or anything anytime <laughs> soon, but, um, I would love to. Yeah, I would. I mean, yeah. for sure. But I don't know. I don't think that's generally, I don't really know what everyone's view with yeah. that is, but yeah. <laughs> it's an, it's, I, I think about it if, if when you see, especially when you see like the billionaires going up in this, it's like, would, yeah. if you had all the money, would you still do this? I, I'm still a bit like you. I'd, if it gets comfortable enough that it's been hundreds of trips have gone and yeah, nothing's yeah. going wrong, it, then maybe. But it still feels high risk. Yeah, the there's other missions as well. So it's not just the the rockets, which is obviously a big kind of scary mm. thing. But um, 
other companies developing balloons that will take hours, but kind of very civilized, gentle, yeah. get you up there, stay Have up champagne. There, but yeah, um, and kind of cruise around a bit more. Yeah. So I think I'd definitely be up for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Do, do, do you get invited as underwriters to, or, or even do you need to go to anything like a launch or... Or I guess the site of a claim, is there a lot of a space adjusting? I was trying to think um, about how this would work. If, yeah, not yeah. so much the site of a claim, because they're yeah. generally... Quite self-explanatory. Two launches, uh, do we have to go? I don't know, we do love to go. Yeah. I went to the first commercial launch of Falcon Heavy, where the, uh, wow. all the booster stages landed, and yeah. it was mind-blowing. It was yeah. like watching a ballet. It was so beautifully yeah. choreographed, it was the... Best and best thing, and as an insurer, you're at the closest possible point. So I think we were less than three miles away from the launch site, and nobody else was allowed that close. Mm. And it was you can feel it in your chest. It feels like you're really part of something special. That yeah. was that was a great moment. I felt so lucky to be part of. Yeah, I, I remember I watched that one because um, they live streamed it like yeah. around the world um, because it was super exciting. Because there was they'd had a number of times where upon them landing they had tipped over and it they, and the huge explosions and you're sort of watching going they're getting so close to pulling this off yeah and now as you said they've got a great track record now it's they've they're making it look very easy now which is obviously very sophisticated science involved but they're doing with this such regularity now that they're building this real sense of confidence in this being the, the way we're going to travel in, into space going forward mm-hmm I'm going to ask a very nerdy question at my own risk, just <laughs> less space nerdy and more gamer nerdy. Okay. Do, do the initials KSP mean anything to you? Kerbal Space Program? Open source space game? No. Okay, this is amazing. And, and the reason I bring it up is because Claudie's smiling. No, he doesn't know. Either. Okay. So this, this is this game that was developed and it is incredible. I buy a lot of sort of PhDs and so on who wanted to build an extremely realistic... I rocket building and and sort of mission oriented uh, game for space exploration where they try and model everything possible and you can build your own rocket and try and get it into orbit try and do moon landings and so on at every stage but it's all simulated as as realistically as possible as i'm almost imagining could insurers start using this mm. as like oh, okay so you've got this new rocket which uses these components you could almost build it in kerbal space program and, yeah. and try to fly it Amazing. and see whether it just blows up or not but you, you can play with fuel levels and thrusters and all sorts of things. It's very cool. Worth checking out, even if you just YouTube Kerbal Space Program. <laughs> yeah. It's very cool. What are the tools that you guys are using now when you price risk? Like, obviously, Ben sort of alluded to, like, models and such. Obviously, there's not the same sort of models you might see as, like, RMS or catastrophe models and things. But you must have some tooling that you sort of help you assess well, and analyze yeah, I risk? Think, um, we build our own models and I think many insurers do. We do get the data so we, we kind of pay for all the historical space data. Mm. Um, we, yeah, we don't have any kind of industry standard models like that that are generally used. So I think different insurers have created their own models which are, you know, updated all the time and, you know, kept up to date with new data. Yeah. With, um, going very nerdy into space underwriting now um how how do you think about things like um exclusions and contracts with something like weather like obviously one of the more sort of uh, horrific incidences was it was too cold and the one of the o-rings on the yeah. um the challenger froze and or and then that resulted See, in I that. I told ex- you he was in there. <laughs> but like, would you would you introduce wording that says, because there are people at the time who are like, if this is if it's this cold, this could happen. How do you think about wording and clauses and exclusions and things like that? Because obviously there's a lot of people who are getting sort of real-time information that 
you might not be privy to at time of underwriting. Before and so a launch has happened, we don't tend to have any exclusions or restrictions. So they generally come in to play once a satellite's up there and something's gone wrong and you get to the renewal and maybe they haven't got the spares they used to have or there's been a failure or there's something that points towards something could go wrong here, then we will have restrictions. Um, but pre-launch, before that, we don't tend to, and but we would expect a certain amount of fuel margin. So if they haven't designed the satellite with spare, then that's written into the contract that they have you know, one year fuel or they have seven and a half percent power extra to what they might need at the end of life. So we, we put those restrictions in. But in terms of actually if the technology fails, we don't tend to. Um, I th we would probably expect a level of redundancy or a level of proof or we just wouldn't really yeah. cover it. There's not really any examples of specifics things being, being yeah. excluded before the launch. Interesting. Does it just follow the usual annual policy structure that most insurance does in the sense that oh, yeah. our satellite's up for renewal. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. pretty much like your, your car renewal, yeah. 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 Um, but what car have you got? <laughs> oh, heavy. <laughs> <laughs> you do those? But. Yeah, what is... Um, when you when you see sort of all the you mentioned a bit before, earlier about earlier about um, sort of pollution around with all the satellites yeah. going up now, what are the risks of sort of dramat dramatized for for effect, mm. but with like gravity as a film where some there's like a bit of a breakage in that yeah. as it as it as the sort of shrapnel, if you will, yeah. goes around it tears up other satellites and that causes more shrapnel in orbit. Like, are those things that are being thought about and concern? Is it a concern or how did the yeah. insurers think about something? At like the that? moment, the risk is still at least a magnitude, possibly two magnitudes smaller than the other risks, the engineering risks that we worry about. So whilst we're kind of aware of them, we don't we don't really price for them at this point. Most of what we insure is in geostationary, so that's 40,000 kilometers above the surface of the Earth. Everything's very orderly. It's going around at the same speed in the same direction. Mm. Um, in low Earth orbit, the collision risk is a lot higher because everything's whizzing around much faster in all directions. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's a definitely an increasing concern. And I think as soon as there is the first uh, collision and a breakup that will give rise to, you know, a lot more and it will become a m much riskier space. So it is something that regulation, you know, there's a lot of regulators looking at that and looking at how operators make sure their satellites are safe when they launch, you know, launch them. Mm -hmm. So they've not got breakupable parts or they've got enough fuel to deorbit at the end or, you know, what's going to happen at the end of life. Yeah. And that's all taken into consideration. But at the moment it's the, the, there's not a huge amount of legal uh, background to it, and it, it, frameworks all need to be developed as to yeah. you know if two, if two things happen, if whose fault, who's at fault? Because if it was your satellite, but you're not operating anymore, and it does damage to someone else, what? Who, you know, it, there's not any international law that's very mature on this yet, but it is something that we are increasingly going to be concerned about. Yeah, and does in those kind of scenarios, I get just in that liability topic, does it tend to be the the operator of the satellite that assumes all the liability, or does is there also it some products? It goes back to the liability? launching state, actually. Okay. So yeah, and that's why in yeah. Europe and in the UK they are developing their um, requirements to buy liability insurance because they mm. need to protect themselves from that. Yeah. Because the UK is soon going to become a launching state. That's the plan. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. I think you're reading about this. I was. I, I was trying to <laughs> gain some fluency before the episode. But would, I'm sure I failed. Would that same liability? And it's, again, it's not very common, but you've seen instances where a satellite's like fallen out of orbit and like landed um, on the Earth. And I don't think you've seen any. I've not seen any anyway where people have been like injured or killed. But you obviously get 
people could be killed if that were to mm. happen or lands in a home or something. Does the liability sort of cover into scenarios like that? Is- for, the, for the launch, is, uh, yes. So parts of the launch vehicle could come down and do damage, and that mm. would be insured on the third-party liability sure. policies. Yeah. Does that become quite long-tailed then in, in some ways? or Not really. No, things that, of, the things yeah. will burn up or they'll fall in the ocean or they'll land on something and you'll know about it pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah. Unless it's, yeah. I was, I was trying to think earlier of some weird contradictions that space insurance might throw up. I was thinking like, oh, if you're on a mission that's far enough away from <laughs> Earth that it's technically in the past or something because yeah. of the general relativity theory. <laughs> Time dilution. <laughs> I, I couldn't quite think of a, a scenario where it works. It must be If we see one, we'll let you know. Yeah. Yeah. But there are, we're seeing missions being developed now to remove debris as well. And yeah. you know, obviously mm. as an insurer, we're supportive of that. And just someone generally, you know, we're all using space assets and the data we get from them so much more all the time increasingly so and it's only going to get more so we do need space to become a safe place to operate yeah i i oh, go ahead i was just going to say how, how did we get there but do you have a question first well, i was just going to say i think space has historically shown itself to be very collaborative once you get outside the sort of space race of the late 60s but from there it seems like even on the space station it's like all these countries building like component parts to like you have the canada arm and all these different elements that like everyone's trying to accomplish and learn things. And there seems to be this deep collaboration amongst that. So um, efforts to reduce waste, I think I, you can see that sort of, we're all trying to do this thing mm-hmm. together. We're all sort of pursuing a shared sort of asset there, which is feels quite collaborative. Hopefully you guys get that a bit as in a benefit as insurers who are people are taking risk out collectively yeah. as the benefit is aggregated up. I was just going to ask based on that, that kind of comment, actually, do you, get exposure to i mean does anybody buy i guess insurance against delays of of launches whether that's you know geopolitical reasons mm-hmm. whether that's availability of team product Not whatever as yet I, there's been over the years but you know it's bubbled up as a topic and uh, operators haven't as yet been keen to buy it and as insurers mm-hmm. we've not offered it but i think if there was the desire to buy it and you know part of it is how how much of the risk are we can we control and can we yeah. rate and price because often it's because the launch vehicle's not ready or the satellite's not ready or sometimes you get dual launches or multiple satellites launching and if you know it, it's so but these are things that i think if there was the demand from the operator for mm. then certainly as an insurance market we should be offering those products but there yeah. hasn't been any so far yeah i think this is one of, the, one of the things that fascinates me the most about this as an insurance class is it's exactly what insurance always is you're introducing like a, an, an entirely new frontier risks associated with associated with that you're leaning as you said before with like lah and things where it's like okay there's elements of this type of risk associated with like what are the other teams that we have who know about that like there's just it's this constant pushing of if to the point you you just had where no one's been asking about that as of yet but if next week you know a request came in yeah it's this well we can solve for this what does that look like well how else would we look at it if it was a marine risk traditionally or similar like you have these sort of reference points by which you draw on and innovate. I think it's a super interesting space. Well, and I think we're going to have to do more of that because the space industry is really changing at the moment. We're at the Mm. cusp of, um, you know, potential huge growth. Well, I think actually it's not even potential. There's going to be, you know, exponential growth in the space industry. And it's driven largely by rapid technological developments that we've seen of late. And that's that's driven largely by private companies. So a notable example is obviously reusable rockets. And Mm -hmm. that's really brought the cost down by, you know, an order of magnitude to get a kilogram into orbit is is that much cheaper now than it was. And that's made all these other businesses viable um, to operate in space. And 
we're, what we're seeing now is a kind of move towards an ecosystem where there are lots of different players doing different bits. So whereas before you had big monolithic companies almost that mm. had to spend billions of dollars or um, creating, you know, building a rocket, launching a rocket and having all the infrastructure there to support the operations. What you're seeing now is more of a kind of distributed ecosystem where, you know, so p people have thought of ideas that they can put assets into space. So then you're getting other companies that are creating the platforms, the satellites, they're sort of off the shelf. And then you'll have other companies that are thinking, okay, well, you know, there's a market now for new launch vehicles. You're seeing new launch vehicle manufacturers. And then you've got other companies doing services like virtual ground stations, so Amazon Web Services, for example. So now a company can specialize on one particular bit and plug into the ecosystem. It doesn't have to do everything. And this is really exciting because I think that will speed up innovation because you're going to have everyone focusing on, on their own bits and, and the barriers to entry will be a lot lower if you don't have to do everything. So I think all and the amount of investment that's going into new space companies, so there's this big movement called New Space. and um, it is basically cheaper access to space and all these businesses that are now going to be able to operate that, that couldn't before. And how does insurance play into that? Because we are really designed, uh, we, the way we've been set up is this big subscription market where we're covering hundreds of millions of dollar assets. We're sharing the risk and we spend a long time evaluating every single risk, like up to two years before, et cetera. Mm. But we're going to have a new breed of client who possibly you know, decides, okay, I've got this payload, I'm going to buy an off-the-shelf satellite, I'm going to launch, I'm going to book myself online, a ride share on a Falcon 9, I'm going to go in a few months' time, and I need my insurance. And it's not going to be hundreds of millions of cover required, it's going to be a few million or yeah. whatever. And I and we need to respond to that. I don't think as, as uh, insurers we're really necessarily um, offering the perfect products for that market yet, and I think that yeah. needs to happen as that market grows. Do you think that will be driven more by insurer supply or by regulatory kind of stipulation for these sort of needs for buyers to buy? Yeah, I think that I think they will probably be need to buy. Um, there'll probably be just a requirement from you know the the, the finances mm. to to buy as well. So they will need the insurance and. I think it, once it becomes a volume market at the moment, there's probably not enough of it, but sure. we're going to move, I think, to a mass market dynamic where the insurance will be more of a commodity as opposed to a bespoke tailored solution. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, I don't know how, how that will impact the, the kind of feel of our market, but I think it is going to happen. Yeah, I, I think the accelerating innovation there is, is exactly right. What you see it from in startups again similarly we can use aws and there's all these little off-the-shelf things you mm -hmm. can you don't need to have or build or pay you know oracle huge sums to do that stuff and i think this is that same thing happening going the cost of getting a satellite or getting something into space is so much lower yeah. that it doesn't have to be a massive government program to launch an idea and that will lead to more mm -hmm. space innovation and space tourism and all those types of things which would be order your custom spacesuit online <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Um, no, it's, it's going to be super, super cool. Um, what are what are the sort of things that you're looking at over sort of a five-year time horizon that are most intriguing? Maybe not from just an insurance perspective, but from a – there's talk of this happening, whether it's a Mars expedition. With, I don't think five years is possible, but perhaps. But like or a secondary moon landing or additional moon landings now. Like what are the things that sort of you go, that will be cool if they, if this stuff starts to happen? Yeah, there's so many predictions. We were at a presentation the other day by a Japanese company who are predicting there's going to be 10,000 people going to the moon every year by 
2040, and then everything you'd need to set up on the moon to support that, you, not not just the, the tourists, but everything that goes around it. And um, I just don't know. I was like, is that really going to happen? But it could. It, it could happen. They're serious companies with an awful lot of funding behind them. Um, I think private space stations will be interesting and mm. I think in orbit manufacturing because there's a lot of properties of materials that you can make in microgravity or where there isn't any gravity which um, you know in pharmaceuticals and, and there's a there's going to be a lot of benefits to being able to produce stuff in space yeah. um, and take some of the sort of heavy industries you know this is one of blue yeah. origins goals take that into space if possible so you can take it off planet off earth yeah um i think those kind of areas be really interesting it's sort of like the comet mining kind of thing we access to new resources yeah there's a few companies there for doing asteroid mining and you know it's really difficult to have in the past to see how the business model for that can work it's a cool mm. idea and and yeah. <laughs> but uh, makes for a good movie but maybe not <laughs> i think that's a few more than five or ten years away yeah, but yeah. you know as, as technology changes things we can't even imagine now will happen we'll be able that's to bring really back exciting. the most dense material ever made or found <laughs> yeah yeah. yeah. Um, favorite space film. <laughs> oh, this is like this is the first game we're playing of this one. But <laughs> favorite space film. Do you have one? I really enjoyed that film. Oh, now I'm not going to be able to what it's called. The um. Who is in it? Oh, I don't know. I, don't, I wasn't Gravity. No, Interstellar. Yeah, Interstellar. Yeah, with really, my kind really of yeah. yeah. That was really good. Uh, Interstellar is very, very good. Um, what's the one with um, Contact? Was also very good with uh, the woman from Sounds of the Lambs, Jodie Foster. I think mm. we're gonna get shouted out of this one. <laughs> um, but they're they're both very like scientifically accurate compared yeah. to like the sort of extreme like space like Star Warsy type stuff. Those are quite like here's how this might actually play out. I did like the. Um... The Mars film a few years ago. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, Martian with Martian. Matt Damon, yeah. yeah. I remember that name. That yeah. was really good. Yeah, like, yeah. Bits that of that are potentially, you know, not all of it. It's a stretch of the imagination, but there's bits of it where they could, you know, grow things. and, and Yeah. Um, no, they're, they're beginning to sort of take kind of to what we were talking about earlier, the sort of what would those next logical steps kind of look like. Now that we've got 10,000 people a year here, what are some of the things that we'll be testing and trying to figure out making that more sustainable or more yeah. viable so they're, they're gonna be if that's gonna happen they're gonna use you know the moon the idea is to use the moon as an outpost to launch yeah for, further out and you'd need to mine your fuel and and your materials and everything else from the moon and that will involve huge industries and huge developments taking yeah. place absolutely there feels like there is the there will be a huge sector of of risk and insurance that will have like space as just like an assumed thing in the, in the same kind of way, like um, cyber is kind of an ex assumed exposure for much of like property risk or similar. Like, mm. although I don't think, you know, someone's going to hack into my nest thermostat or smart TV and like, but yeah. there's, it's so well connected. I think you'll see something similar where it will be like a property risk the property's just on the moon. And there's lots of like space adjacent risks <laughs> in transit, right? But um, you'll see this weird hybrid. There's, as you were sort of saying, all these things begin to grow and grow in exposure. That will space space exposure will just be like yeah. an assumed part Every of- Every company will be a space company yeah. to an extent. I think yeah. so. I think it's possible as well. It'd be very cool. It's convenient that we've chosen the world worldwide. That's the sort of <laughs> geographical basis for most things. That's an exclusion yeah. in itself, I'm sure. Yeah.
And are you mostly looking at European, like European-based risk, or obviously there's launches out of out of Asia, out of, the, out of North America, obviously. It's definitely a global space market, and there's a big amount of risk from the US, from Asia, from Europe, mm. from everywhere. We don't really have the geographies that we we focus on. It's too small a market, really, for that to be to be yeah. honest. So, yeah. Cordy's been holding up a little sign because uh, he wants me to ask you to visualize <laughs> an exciting uh, price it game scenario. So uh, if Elon were to take a cyber truck on a Falcon Heavy to the moon, you haven't written a soundtrack there, the only thing, <laughs> but to whichever soundtrack you please. Uh, how, how, how would you even talk? think about pricing it? And then, and then yeah, what would you, what would you well, say? What is well, the exact yeah. technical price? <laughs> And then what does the market price? Yeah, but if yeah. we were just looking at the success of the mission and delivering him there and nothing to do with him and how he behaved and what he did mm. while he was there. Oh, he's certainly getting high. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess we know how to rate a Falcon Heavy to mm. put satellites mm. into orbit. So that's that's something we can do. Then it's a question of, okay, at what point is a Falcon Heavy going to stop and some other propulsion systems going to take over to get to the moon? And then that's not been invented yet, but we'd be looking at what technology it's using, where that's been used before, how reliable it is. I don't think, I mean, maybe not Elon Musk, but this isn't completely uh, something that I think we will be rating things like this in in the not too distant future. Yeah. And it will take a bit of a leap of uh, a bit of a leap of faith in, in, in some instances. Mm. But, um, you know, the idea that we have gone to the moon before, we can do it and it will happen again. There's the, the will that wasn't there for a very long time, you know, since yeah. all the moon landings. I think it's back now. So I wouldn't like to put a rate on that specific uh, mm -hmm. concept, but it's definitely something that we would be able to get our heads around trying to well, make. And, and the Cybertruck, vastly less expensive <laughs> than like a lunar rover, I suspect. <laughs> <laughs> $40,000. Right, exactly. It's a bargain <laughs> compared to... Well, the, uh, the other one as well, we've, I guess, seen Bezos in his amusingly mm -hmm. shaped rocket in space. <laughs> um, so presumably, as, as we were chatting about before the episode, if you can send the world's most expensive man yeah. into space then that's been done before yeah. So. yeah do would people if people were going to go on um like a like a like flight like whether it's a spacex flight or it's a, a blue origin flight does the, who does that insurance who does the sort of can you buy insurance for that if yeah. like i don't if i because obviously i feel it's going to be an exclusion in my life policy Right. Um, but how would how would that part so of it would, work? It would have to be for a fixed limit. It would have to be based yeah. on some technical failure of the equipment. And we have we have rated mm. things like that, and we have looked at that. And um, there's often for tourists now there'll be a lot of cross waivers that they can't, um, you know, for for what they what they're allowed to do. And a lot of the insurance really kicks in as a very very last resort if all those waivers fail because none of it's mm. been tested before. So it is new territory, and these products need need to be developed. Yeah. Do you, I was going to say, do you ever get brought in? Sorry, we're interrogating you. We're having so much fun. So thank you again. Um, Indulging our space. I know, I know. So much curiosity. I feel like I back in science at school, I always used to be the kid who was there going like, "But what if?" And then just paint some ludicrous scenario back to work. Um, yeah. In in the the sort of broader line of businesses that are out there. Uh, do you ever get brought in as the space experts for like I I don't know asteroids and their risk to property or as a catastrophe peril or for 
Uh, yeah. Cargo that's space cargo, solar storms. I, I we can't have imagine. to model all those yeah. risks. We have realistic disaster scenarios that we have to report to Lloyd's, mm. and that will be, you know, we have to think about what happens if there are solar flares. Like the last biggest one was, I think, 1859, the Carrington event, and we haven't seen anything like it now. And if we did, you know, what would happen if something like that happened? Would we make all these assumptions, but no one really knows what happened. So 5% of every satellite failed, or if you know, all the satellites went out at the same time. But if that did happen, yeah, there'd be big insurance claims, but actually everything on the planet would be, you know, there'd be no power systems, everything, there'd be bigger yeah. problems to worry about as well. But we, and then we also have to look at generic faults. So say four of your um, satellites made by the same manufacturers up in space, they're high value, and there's a defect that only manifest four years into life and so suddenly and this has happened there's mm. there's, there's, there's a you know an example of this not four years into life but once you know they've been up there so people think oh they're fine and then they launch more and then they realize that none of them are going to work and they give rise to billions of dollars of claim mm. that is um that's that's not um something that we can you know not worry about we we do have to report all of that in our worst case scenarios of of what could go wrong okay. yeah i have, I have to ask especially with this being the reinsurance podcast but i can imagine that a lot of i uh, sort of more generalist stakeholders in an insurance business when they realize that they've got space exposures and they realize the values at risk etc probably feel a little bit uncomfortable and out of their depth not knowing what's going on so what's the sort of attitude i guess towards yeah. like reinsurance in the space market well we buy reinsurance i think um about 50, there's about 50 percent that goes into the reinsurance market mm. the whole Mm -hmm. market um but in terms of you know space is really good because it's uncorrelated with a lot of the other risks so True. it's seen as diversifying which is yeah. great for everyone's portfolios mm -hmm. it is a volatile market you know a really profitable year um, and the difference between a profitable year and a, a loss making year can just be one launch yeah. and so it's very you know you, and you can get to the end of the year and you think you know we've had this before we've had launches on christmas day or on new year's eve and you think you've got to the end of your year and you can click you know and then yeah. oh, oh dear no you can't so yeah um it is it is a volatile class and so i think people really do try and manage their exposures and buy reinsurance uh, but it's it's mainly quota share reinsurance there's not that much yeah. excessive loss bought and yeah yeah i guess if it goes it goes and <laughs> A lot of cases. That's mm. interesting. Yeah. This has been such a fascinating conversation. I feel like we should just dive into more of, of this as a niche little category. Um, the spin-off podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Where we build Legos out of spaceships. Um, is there anything else you wanted to you wanted to dive into on this? So, so it's completely back to front. So apologies, listeners, because we should have done this right in the beginning. But <laughs> Would you be able to give us a bit of a flavor of the history of space insurance? And just because we, we talked a lot about where we are mm. today, but how did we get here? Like, yeah, I mean, the first, so when was the first satellite launch? I think 1957 Sputnik. And then the first commercial satellites were in the, you know, in the 60s. I think the first policy we issued was in the mid 60s, but it was for the satellite on the ground before launch. Mm -hmm. I think it was, I don't know, um, 1968 or so, where the first policy for the launch phase was issued um, by Lloyd's in uh, for a US satellite. Lloyd's uh, has about a third of this market, it is a global okay. market, and it is so about a third of it internationally, um, two thirds of it is you know company markets around the world. And uh, we've just been, you know, growing well, I say growing since then. Actually, it's very um, it's the size of the market. It's about a you know at best a sort of billion dollar market, mm -hmm. but it is really rating dependent. And what we see mm -hmm. is that um, 
when there's a loss suddenly or big loss so rates have been going down so i joined the insurance market in 2008 and we just saw steady the rates decrease every year uh, and we argued that's fine because technology is improving and testing is getting better and actually the loss ratios are, are the same um, but it does mean the overall premium levels come down and then we got to a point where it was getting uh, you know close to unsustainable in 2019 mm -hmm. and there was the biggest historical loss ever which was 420 million in in one loss and in the same year there was some smaller losses as well which it's was bad together to some syndicates isn't it yeah it's a falcon eye satellite so it's oh. a vegas c and Ariane Space, a european rocket that failed I think it was the 14th launch of the rocket the first 13 have been mm. successful so back to the point they do yeah. it's not just the early ones that fail and um that was sort of woke the market up and mm. suddenly um overnight well over a short period rates tripled so you know 300 percent rate rises you don't or to, yeah. actually more than tripled you don't you don't tend to see um and then they held and the, you know some markets left uh, following those loss making years a couple of big well-known international markets pulled out but then because the rates were so high then new markets come in and then what we're seeing now is that the rating starting to go down again mm. and it does appear to be it doesn't necessarily follow the cycles of the rest of the market yeah. um it just has its own cycles that are to do which is a bit i mean it's not great um but really it is trigger you know the, the the rating will really change i guess presumably there's not a huge amount of data or homogenous data across these different things maybe as the number of satellites you know increases quite substantially that's changing but historically i guess as you said you know we've had 13 of these and they've all been fine so <laughs> yeah hopefully the 14th exactly. will be too but yeah yeah i mean the law of large numbers and as soon is... as you get to a certain amount then they change something on the rockets you almost have to yeah. go back to yeah. <laughs> yeah. that was gonna be my next sort of follow-up question to that is is they're constantly trying to improve it and optimize it and tweak it. So it's it's even if even if it's the same sort of Falcon 9, yeah. it's like they may have had like iterative like tweaks and enhancements yeah. that they think are improving stuff, but may have introduced another risk that we've I not mean, yet. Falcon 9s are changing all the time. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we've got to a point with those types of risks where we basically are expecting them to change every single mm -hmm. time. And what we try and understand from manufacturers like them is how do they deal with the changes? What process do they use to test and to make sure they're mm. reliable? Um, so we have to take a different view because otherwise we wouldn't be able to yeah. insure them. Are they are they mostly insuring on a quarter share basis as well? The like like SpaceX are they gonna are they buy or the SpaceX or you don't buy the the, the satellite uh, the owners, operators operators who are yeah. launching on a space yeah they will they will buy their um, insurance from the market and yeah. then. They, they tend it tends to be on an equal basis so everyone will get like a 15 or 10 or whatever the, the you know share yeah. share of the risk but it they won't it doesn't tend to be layers like a primary yeah fine it tends to be yeah so I, I realize we've grilled you for ages and i wanted to end on a slightly fun uh conversational topic but have you ever had any exposure to sort of alien related insurance stuff of any kind like have you done alien invasion or abduction or have you seen it in the market because we're we've we've heard that it exists what have and you heard exists so abduction i think is there's abduction there's insurance some in the u.s you can ah. buy you can buy it you can buy abduction insurance and there's something in the oh, states right. um at least there was for a window where you could buy um you could buy it was like it was like if you were abducted people like would look after your pets and things it was like this very strange amazing yeah. i feel like i've missed out no one yeah. has ever asked me for yeah, i mean it's... alien abduction insurance <laughs> but, but I, I could imagine <laughs> do, do you think about it i guess is it typically just risks or, or are there specific kind of perils that you would have like a named peril 
Like if, if you've got a satellite that mysteriously goes missing mm. or I don't know, is it just an open, if anything happens to the satellite, it's going yeah, to Yeah, it's an all-risk okay. policy. So if, if it was abducted by aliens, we <laughs> and we wouldn't it's just even vanished. require it. We don't... That's the beauty of our policies. And... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some aliens out here just harvesting our satellites now. He's like, don't we need proof for this? <laughs> yeah. I think that's the, I mean, we, 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 we have exclusions for, you know, attacks generally. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but they're specifically for nation-based Yeah, like a, a war risk kind of component. Yeah. Does that yeah. then get insured by anyone separately? Like, are there any At specialists? At the moment, no, yeah. but I can okay. see as, you know, mm. there has been some geopolitical issues around, yeah, you know, uh, different countries claiming different, you know, satellite capabilities and anti-satellite capabilities. So whether that is yeah. a thing that develops in the future, but um, that would, you know, have to be proven and then... But, we don't have an exclusion for alien abduction, so we would cover it. It should be on the, all the marketing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, just want to see, I just want to see it on the exclusions. There's just a singular exclusion. <laughs> alien abduction excluded. Or even like a, if you pick a very, try and allude to something that's not yeah. true at all, like a alien abductions excluded where the alien is from X planet. Or, Here's know, what we should mil- do. Milky Way based abductions <laughs> only. <laughs> Superseed is going to get us, is going to launch a singular satellite. Cool. And at, we're going to request specifically for alien abductions to be excluded so that it's in the contract as alien abduction Will exclusions. Will you be looking for a lower price because of that? Then? Oh, yeah. Well, half off. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, come to me when you're ready and see what we could do. We'll try to figure out what's the smallest satellite we can purchase <laughs> so we can get a policy un- underwritten oh, that yeah. says, yeah, that says we, we want alien abduction excluded specifically <laughs> just to wind up the market. Uh, well, there you have it. Is, <laughs> is there anything you'd like to add for, to this fantastic episode? Thank no, you. thank you. It's been really nice talking about space. No, we've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time on the Reinsurance Podcast. Thank you. <laughs>